On this episode, I'm in the room with Joe Thorne, and we're discussing his new book and how to walk with God through difficulty. Welcome to In the Room, episode number 15. I'm Ryan Hughley, and I'm the founding and lead pastor of Redemption Bible Church just outside Chicago. You can find me at ryanhughley.com and also on Twitter and Instagram at at Ryan Hughley. That's H-U-G-U-L-E-Y. If you're new to the podcast, my goal is simple. I want to bring you in the room for conversations with pastors, authors, and artists. You get to listen in on what I hope will be helpful conversations with a diverse group of people. Today, I'm in the room with Joe Thorne. Joe's one of my closest pastor friends, and he's written a great new book called Experiencing the Trinity, The Grace of God for the People of God. In our conversation, we discuss why so many ministry leaders burn out, how to endure difficult seasons of life, and the role of mental health professionals in the Christian life. Joe's been a constant encouragement to me for the last six years, and I'm confident this conversation will encourage you. So come on in the room for my conversation with Joe Thorne. Well, Joe, thanks for taking the time. (laughs) Man. I'm sorry, are we going? Yeah, that's pretty much going to set the tone for the whole thing. So thank you very much for taking the time to do this. I appreciate it. Uh, I really think it's important to show honor where it's due. So uh, I don't think probably anybody other than me knows that the idea for the title in the room actually came from you. We were together over a year ago now, and I was telling you about a conversation that I'd had or... I was in the room for, and I just said, like, I couldn't believe I got to be in the room for that conversation. And you said, that's what you should call it. So thanks for the great name. I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, it's uh, man, your first, uh, your first podcast with uh, Matt Chandler was great. I loved it. Good. Well, hopefully this one goes well as well. No, I'm, I'm going to be honest. Not, I got some doubts. Not as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, for those who don't know, uh, you and I are close friends. So if this is meaner than other podcasts, that's probably the reason for that. It's fair. And you signed up for that. I just want to go yes. on record as saying no, that. I'm, okay, uh, I wouldn't want it any other way. All right. Well, Joe, for those who don't know you, uh, why don't we start with you just giving a little bit about uh, your background? So maybe about where you're from, uh, kind of house you grew up in, when you came to faith, how'd you get into ministry? Just kind of a brief overview of, of, uh, of your background. Sure. I grew up in the far west suburbs of Chicago, uh, directly west, in a small town called Geneva, and uh, grew up in a non-Christian family with very kind, loving, supportive parents. And um, as I as I grew up without church, without God, without any sense of of um, spirituality at all, I um, I was asking a lot of questions about the purpose of life, uh, the reason for suffering. Uh, even at a very young age, I was asking these kinds of questions, and no one could answer them to my satisfaction. Um, shortly into uh, high school, I had gotten into a pretty, a pretty rough crowd of kids and had um, become a very stereotypical uh, troubled kid, or whatever you'd want to say. So, got in trouble with the police and you know, some drug use and uh, all of that. And uh, so, you know, kind of a kind of a cliche story, I guess, at this point, right? Um, I was very lost, didn't know the Lord, was, um, was very uh, corrupt morally, and uh, it's a very embarrassing time in my life. So uh, when did the change happen? Like, how did you, did, uh, you had a friend, didn't you, that, that kind of really started to engage you with the yeah. gospel, shared the gospel with you? How'd that happen? Yeah, um, I, I think it was... I was 17. I was sent to the dean's office because I'd done something 
that not good. <laughs> yeah. And while I was there, there was a girl there who was there helping the dean in the office. And uh, I asked her on a date, uh, which was uncharacteristic of me. And um, and she said, "With well, we'll do that with some friends, with some friends together. And so we went out and we saw a movie and then she started telling me about Jesus. And this was the first time I had ever heard the gospel. It was the first time I had ever met a Christian who loved the Lord, who loved the church, who loved the word of God. Never seen that before. And so for the next year, I really wrestled with the claims that Jesus made with the invitation to find forgiveness and and uh healing and, and eternal life. I wrestled with all of that. And for about nine months, I really despaired for my soul because I knew that I was condemned and I knew that that was fair. I knew that hell awaited me and that um, I deserved it. So nine months you wrestled with that. Yeah. And this, that's all prior to actually making a decision to put your faith oh, in Oh, goodness. I thought believing in Jesus was impossible. Hmm. Um, it was glorious. I thought it was beautiful. I wanted to believe. And I wanted to have what these Christians that I had met had, but I just thought it was too far beyond me that I had hated God for too long and uh, was, uh, was such an immoral person and had done so many things that I was even then very much um, ashamed of and bearing a lot of guilt over. So how did that change then? While I graduated from high school, and I was reading the Gospel of Matthew on my waterbed, this was the 80s, and, um, yeah, that's when the waterbed was cool. Yeah. Yeah. Cause right now everybody knows it's just bad for your back. Yeah, and, it's terrible. Uh, so I, um, I was reading the gospel of Matthew and I went from not quite understanding how God would forgive me. I mean, I knew death and resurrection of Jesus and I had heard it, but I went from not getting it and not really believing it or trusting in it to in an instant hmm. believing it. Um, receiving it, resting upon it. I literally rolled and fell off my bed and started praying uh, very irreverently uh, to the Lord and um, and everything changed that night. So wow. so fast forward, you ended up going to uh, Moody, Bible Moody Bible Institute. You uh, So how did you get from uh, Moody Bible Institute? Now you're the pastor of Redeemer Fellowship in St. Charles, Illinois, and Acts 29 Church, great church. Uh, how did you go from, what was the journey from like Bible college to church planting? Yeah, the, the beats are, uh, I met the most amazing person in the world. I met my, my wife, Jen, in Bible college and uh, figured if everything else fell away in this world uh, and I had her, that would be, that would be enough, right? So um, we got married right after Bible college and then we went to Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, the best Southern Baptist seminary you can possibly attend and probably one of the better seminaries you could attend in all of the world. So I went to Southern Seminary in Louisville and uh, while we were there, I pastored a small church. We um, uh, finished up, came back up to the Chicagoland area, the far west suburbs, to plant a church with our home church in St. Charles, Illinois. And we, uh, we started a church called Grace Baptist Church in Elburn, Illinois, which was a bedroom community at the time. No, it still is. And just a little bit bigger than it used to be. We started this, uh, this church in that particular city because the people in the core group who had asked me to come back and do this really had a heart for that community. So we planted a church there without knowing what we were doing at all. And uh, we knew theology and we knew ministry, I suppose, but church planting and systems and things like that. We were clueless. Uh, 
no real network at the time or coaching. Nope, just uh, Southern Baptist and uh, no coaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, good people yeah. and a great core group. And to this day, that core group is still with us. You know, this that was 2000 and That's we're awesome. in 2014 in a, in a replant now and everybody's really it's mostly still together. So that was like a year and a half that Grace, that oh, you were pastoring Grace? No, we started, uh, let's see, small groups in 2000. We were worshiping in 2002. Uh, by 2004, we constituted with maybe uh, 40 five in attendance on a Sunday. Okay. And then uh, we grew to about 60 some. Okay. About a third of our people were new Christians. Um, we had exhausted all of our relationships. We were we were sharing the gospel. People were coming to know Jesus. It was really exciting, but we reached not one person in the city that we had planted. Mm-hmm. Everybody that we were reaching were from a more densely populated area. And so um, we decided that we needed to relocate and relaunch. We had sort of lost our way. I um I really once we once we constituted and became a church in 2004 I really didn't have a clear vision for what's next and we didn't have good systems in place the vision of the church got hijacked since I wasn't laying one out and we really plateaued and became uh, much more inwardly focused mm-hmm. and so the lord really brought this to mind we knew we needed we needed to relocate and relaunch and repent right we really needed to repent from being just um, selfish with the gospel and and overly focused on us and just meeting our needs and not reaching out to others. And in the midst of that is when God opened this opportunity with your, really the mother church that had sent you out yeah. and the potential of merging with them and starting a, restarting the whole thing, both churches essentially and starting over, correct? Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, we were going to move back to the area that our parent church was at, you know, which is St. Charles, Illinois. And we told them uh, they were without a pastor at the time and they were looking for one. And I'd been trying to get some of my buddies to come up and lead that small church. And they, uh, they said, yeah, okay, you're going to come back up here uh, into this area. That's great. Um, You know, what are you thinking? And we said, well, we're looking at, you know, one of the neighboring cities, maybe St. Charles itself, but probably somewhere along this particular road. And, but as we began to talk, uh, God really impressed upon me at first that, well, they've got about 30 people in a church that's been dying over the years. We've plateaued with about 60 people, and we need to relaunch. They need to restart altogether. Why not do this together? They had older couples and families. We had younger couples and families. And we began to meet and pray about this. Uh, the elders at, at our first church, um, at the first church plant, Grace, they began to think that this was worth exploring. And then First Baptist, our parent church, began to feel that this was worth exploring. So over the course of a year, uh, we started worshiping together, praying together, meeting together, studying together, researching together. And in 2007, we uh, disbanded both churches, the church plant that I had started, and the parent church that sent us. We disbanded both and came back together and reconstituted with um, a brand new, not just a new name, but a new vision, a new confession, uh, a new church covenant, constitution, everything. And uh, Redeemer Fellowship was born. We actually only shook out with uh, 40 adults. Yeah, yeah, 40 adults. And so how many years ago was that now? That was 2007. 2007, that's awesome. Yeah, and it's been it's been fantastic. And I know one of the uh, primary outworkings of your ministry, especially in the how long have you been blogging? Uh, inconsistently since two thousand five. All right, so writing has been a huge part of your ministry for quite some time now. 
and uh, you are getting ready for the release of your second book now in, uh, in February. And uh, the new book is called Experiencing the Trinity, the Grace of God for the People of God. And I think what people are going to find really interesting about, um, about this book that they won't expect, I think, beforehand is really kind of what inspired it. Because what inspired the writing of the book was what most people would refer to as burnout. Um, and so can you tell me a little bit about, you share this in the introduction, but tell us a little bit about um, what preceded the journey that led you to uh, write this project. It never occurred to me until this very moment that all through high school, I was called a burnout <laughs> and that I actually suffered burnout. Yeah, and then in it actually ministry, happened. I became a, like a real burnout, like more, oh wow. Okay. Who would have thought that after drugs is when you would burn Yeah, out? yeah, that I, I became a burnout after Jesus, after yeah. I became a Christian. So what happened exactly that, that well, the, led into the project? Well, the, the short story is that um, like, like a lot of people and most people in ministry that I know, I was working uh, too much for too long uh, without resting. So I didn't have proper, uh, it, although I, in my mind, I had established them, I did not have proper boundaries uh, for limitations on work, private time, uh, family time, things like that. And uh, I was constantly uh, taxing my, my body and my soul. Yeah. And, you know, like, again, like just about every every person in ministry that I know, uh, doing that for a period of time, uh, for too long of a time, uh, causes a great deal of trouble. And um, so, yeah, while, while doing that, and again, like I wasn't put in that position because of the people around me. Um, I have elders and a, a church that is very sensitive to me and my needs. They are not taxing me. I was taxing myself. So I know some guys are in a position where the church is running them into the ground. Right. That was not my experience. I was running myself into the ground and was uh, and wound up really falling into a bad place. Yeah, and so you you like you describe in the intro like there there was a day where you hit a wall. Yeah, down in the city, hands started to shake. Like what were what were some of the symptoms that you were having that that kind of really brought this to the surface? Yeah, you were there at that meeting where um, we were all together in a meeting uh, downtown and uh on wabash and uh, i left that meeting feeling fine but i got maybe two blocks not even down the road going to another meeting and my hands started to shake uh i became incredibly fearful like i was afraid and i don't get a i just i just don't feel that very often became very afraid very emotional i wanted to cry also not a common feeling that i have i favor anger like yeah. that's a, that's a good one for me. That, um, that's my, kind of my warm spot. Uh, I was fearful and emotional and I had no idea what was going on. I had to literally sit on my hands while I went to my next meeting, uh, to just kind of make it through that without shaking all over the place. And, um, afterwards I called my wife and started to kind of unpack what was going on. And throughout that season, it was a, a deep abiding sense of, of anxiety that uh, never would not leave. Yeah. It remained in my heart throughout that time, and and I just it kept getting darker and darker for me. Yeah, and I want to spend a good amount of time talking about really the content and the concept of the book. But um, I think to press in on this mental health thing a little bit would be really helpful, as so many people struggle with 
varying forms of and 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 extents and levels of anxiety. Mm-hmm. So from what I I can tell being your friend during that time and then also kind of rereading the book, it seems like it was a mixture of good counsel, community and communion with God that really led to recovery for you. Right. Um but one of the things that I so appreciated about the intro to the book is your vulnerability surrounding um, your journey to seeing medication also as being a viable means of pursuing health. And, and, and so many Christians, as you know, are still so uncomfortable Mm -hmm. with taking medication for mental health reasons. And to your, by your admission, like you were one of them initially. And so I I wonder what, what were some of the hangups, uh, that you had with medication personally? And then what are some of the common reasons that Christians are so reluctant to embrace medication in the pursuit of mental health? Yeah. Theologically, um, I wasn't opposed to medication uh, when it's necessary for, for any kind of, of legitimate illness, right? Whether that be uh, something related to your liver or pancreas or your brain. Yeah. Uh, but for me, because I fancied myself um, as a either a tough guy or a spiritual guy, um, I was not about to rely on medicine. And so my hangups were... Number one, medicine is fine, but I don't need that. I just need to pray more, repent more. Uh, I viewed it purely as a spiritual problem. Hmm. And uh, without any uh, physical or physiological components to it that needed to be remedied. And so uh, I thought, well, I'll deal with this spiritually and I'll pray and I'll trust and I'll repent and I'll address the idols in my life and all of this and I'll find relief. And uh, the truth is, I, I found no relief. I prayed all the time, and I would sweat in praying and find the smallest measure of relief. So do you think then it was both – so some of it's pride. Yeah, I fancy myself absolutely. as a spiritual guy and a strong guy. I don't need to take that. That's got to be <clears throat> one of the primary drives for lots of people. Mm-hmm. And there's still such a stigma and shame around it, especially within the church. But then also – a it seems like maybe there was a little bit of, I don't mean this in an insulting way, but like an ignorance around, mm-hmm. um, like not thinking it was just a spiritual issue right, when absolutely. it wasn't. No. And so I know that there was a process of, of really sort of learning a lot more about it. Agreed? Yeah. Yeah. No, for, for me, it was, it was all of that. And it, it really took, uh, Dr. David Murray at uh, Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary to walk me through everything so that I could actually see that I was where I was because of a whole host of issues. And um, there is a spiritual component there. Uh, well, it's all spiritual, right? In that sense, sure. we ought to say that, that, that all of this relates to the spiritual life. But there were gospel issues at play that needed to be addressed. Um, but there were also um, mental health, these physical issues in play that needed to be addressed. And until I could he had to really convince me, you got to look at your diet, you got to look at your sleep habits, you're going to have to look at your, your, your personal life, your responsibilities, um, you're going to have to address the sin in your life and all of this. And as I was doing all of that and finding no relief, he said, and you're going to need to talk to your doctor yeah. because your, your brain is not working the way it's supposed to work. And at least he said that that could be the case. Yeah. And so when I finally, reluctantly, after a few months of him gently uh, encouraging me. I, uh, I went to my doctor and um, really good doctor. And he kind of walked me through and said, you know, what he would recommend for my anxiety. And I started taking this little pill 
And uh, it took, I'm guessing, three months, and I began to feel normal for the first time. Uh, I can't remember how long it had been. Years, years and years, where I just felt like myself again. But the counsel that you got from Dr. Murray was really real. I mean, I understand one of the reasons. I think another, it's not just pride. It's not just ignorance. I think there's also some fear and skepticism because we live in such an overly medicated culture. Or, I mean, and I think that's true, but there's certainly a perception that we're an overly medicated. So I think there's a reluctancy on people's parts as well to, to not want to just be subscribed or prescribed a, a pill. Yeah, there are, there are biblical theological reasons people object to um, the, the secular, even research that's been done in psychology and, and medicine. Uh, but then there is the legitimate concern over um, the, the overprescription of medication. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, I mean, I was a kid that they threw onto Ritalin back in the eighties, you yeah. know, uh, and it didn't help. Yeah. Um, it just gave me something else to pop. So, uh, I understand that, that hesitation, but it's why you need good doctors and you, you need some counsel through that. Like I, if it wasn't a guy at Puritan reformed theological seminary saying, you need to see a doctor about this. I never would have gone. Yeah. I needed a guy in kind of in my tribe to say, yeah, you're, you're messed up. Yeah. You need some help. So Dr. Murray's done great work on the entire mental health. His book, Christians Get Depressed too, or something like that. Isn't that the name of that book? That's, yeah. a, that's a good book Well, as he's well. got a book coming out uh, in February, uh, same month my book's coming yeah. out. And, uh, but it's called The Happy Christian, and it is fantastic. It is a, it'll be a very important book uh, for pastors to have uh, and for Christians in general to read. It's, uh, it's going to be really good. Well, now that we've pushed his book, let's talk about yours a little bit. My book um, is much smaller. Your book is much like Which me. is like you. No, yeah, I beat perfect. you too. It's, see, I know where you're going. <laughs> Um, well, one of the things I really like about <clears throat> the way that you wrote your first book, Note to Self, and then also this new one, Experiencing the Trinity, is that you, you sort of give readers a window through which to observe your own communion with God through this very difficult time in life. And so these chapters read like journal entries almost. And so one of the things I wonder is, was, is, is it or was it ever difficult for you to write uh, about such a personal issue from, from such a personal standpoint. Like, I mean, it's almost like we get to read your journey through that whole thing and you do it pastorally and you're, but is that ever difficult for you? Not this time. Um, I, I've always been a pretty open guy about like, I'm not too afraid to share my life and what's going on. Um, but what led to the writing of this book, this meltdown that I had, uh, this breakdown that I had in 2011, I had to come to a place where I, 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 I saw that I was the weakest, most fragile man that I know, which is not an easy place for a guy to get to. Sure. Um, I've never thought of myself as fragile or weak, even though I'm a wee man, as you like to say. Yes, yeah, tiny. Um, five foot five, if yeah. I'm puffing out my chest yeah. and standing up straight. That's barely an adult's height. But but it is. It is sort so, of. So all right. So back yeah. off. So uh, in my in my full adult stature of five foot five, I still never felt like I was weak or helpless or anything like that. And then in 2011, when I had this crash, I knew I was weak and frail and fragile. And uh, once I finally got back to a place of health later in 2012, um, I could see then even more clearly that I am still a fragile and weak man. And that I need 
God and the gospel and the church more than I ever thought that I did. Once I hit that point, um, I just really don't Didn't feel like anymore. I don't care. I yeah. don't have a problem. Just, yeah. you know, I know a lot of guys are afraid to talk about medication because of what people think. Um, like, I just don't really care yeah. anymore at all uh, about that. So yeah, it was, um, it was, it would have been hard, I think, uh, to admit some of this had I not really reached that place of, of, of humiliation, uh, before God, you know, a, a graceful humiliation where God, you know, humbled me and helped me to see, uh, the grace that is available. Yeah. Well, one of the things that, I mean, the, your vulnerability makes the subject matter so much more accessible for people. Uh, and I think that, I think that I wrote a blog post a couple months ago on pastoral vulnerability. And I just, I think that that's one of the, uh, I don't know whether it's intentional or unintentional. I won't make that judgment, but I think that it's one of the more neglected necessities in pastoral ministry. And I think it's one of the ways that either intentionally or unintentionally leaders of all types put themselves on a, on this pedestal right. that people look up to and then view that as inaccessible. I could never be that. I could never get there. And I think that, that your vulnerability and then vulnerability in general makes it so much more accessible for people. Right. And uh, so that's been really, really helpful. And you, well, you know what that's like just as a preacher, that people respond totally. to preaching that is bold and hope-filled and gospel-grounded, you know, like experiential theology. Like you lay all of that out, but if the messenger who is laying that out is transparent and real with his frailties and failures without making much of himself in that process, but sure. just legitimately, appropriately sharing – it really, it sets people up to receive the message. And, you know, I don't, I don't feel like I'm, I'm, I'm a great preacher, but I know that the people who respond to my preaching oftentimes are responding to it the way that they do, because I try to be honest about myself in the midst of it. Absolutely. So, I mean, I think, I think it, it, it does far more harm to pretend yeah, uh, than it will ever do to just to be honest. You just mentioned experiential theology, <clears throat> which uh, is something that you write about on your blog. And then, and is also really the viewpoint from which all of your writing comes from. And I think that's so important because as we all know, when theology exists, exclusively as an intellectual endeavor uh, by itself that just is so damaging, both to the individual and really to everyone around them. So I love the way in your preaching and in your blogging and in your books, you move theology from the head to the heart, and you're really committed to that, and this book does that. And so what you do in this new project is you're trying to do that very thing with the doctrine of the Trinity, which is no small task. And I, I think the reason I wanted to start by talking about what led to the book is because I, I don't want people to read the title of the book and think like, oh, this is just a theological work about the Trinity. You make it so experiential, which I think is so important. So I'm, I'm curious, like what exactly does the doctrine of the Trinity have to do with the difficult season that you went through and what so many, like how, how, how is that helpful to people? Yeah. The, uh it's the book has been referred to by a few people as a book on the Trinity. When is your book on the Trinity coming out? And it is not a book on the Trinity. Yeah. I would leave that to the heavy hitters out there. Um, uh, as, as, as a pastor theologian, um, I'm really burdened to take the doctrines of God and to um, show how they connect to the life of faith. And so I rely on the great works uh, of the Trinity 
um, rather than uh, coming up with my own. And so uh, this, how does, how does the doctrine of the Trinity relate? Uh, because it really is about the knowledge of God. That's okay. the simplest way that I could say it, that in in the darkest time of my life, when I wanted to leave ministry and I mean, my, my family was great. Uh, the church was healthy. Everything was fine, but I felt like I was dying and I needed to leave. In the midst of all of that, it was the knowledge of God that that saved me. And so what I found throughout that time, and they are essentially journal entries, a lot of them are from my journals, uh, just kind of edited. And... Um, it was, well, who, who is this? Because it's just, I'm reading scripture. And then in each case, it's not a principle that is impacting me. It's a person that is speaking to me. And so in many cases, it's God who is father is addressing me and at work in my life. And, and he is not just this omnipresent God who is, who is everywhere, but he is a God who is present with his people in a special way. Mm-hmm. He is with me in my darkest hour. And so these doctrines of God as Father and then uh, God as Holy Spirit um, were, were very rich for me, seeing how the Holy Spirit um, as, this, uh, as, as the, the person who intercedes on my behalf, who fills me and strengthens me and sanctifies me. I mean, this was huge. And of course, we're always dialing in on Jesus, right? You know, the second person uh, of the Trinity. Uh, and and so again, going back and, and seeing who Christ is in his deity and humanity and in his, in his personhood and his work, uh, how those things relate to my struggles, right? And so in each, you, you could think about it in this way. If you were to look at the doctrines of of the person of God related, you know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what I, what I was doing in my own heart was saying, okay, how does the presence of God relate to me in the midst of my misery? Mm-hmm. So for those who are confused or hurting or spiritually cold, you know, how does uh, the knowledge of God right? His, his omniscience, how does that relate to the gospel and how does that relate to me mm-hmm. specifically? And so that would be an example to you. So like we say like, well, God knows all things. Yeah. He's the God of all knowledge, perfect knowledge, which is amazing and humbling and even scary for some people. But the gospel end of that is that God knows his people. He foreknows us right which is a kind of love he he has a an affection for us before we are even created so he knows us in that way he says this to jeremiah paul talks about the foreknowledge of god and it is a special knowledge that he has of his people it's a love or affection that he has for his people that he doesn't have for those who are not his people yeah. jesus says right in the end i'll say to you i never knew you so it's it's finding how all of these doctrines in the person of God relate to the gospel and then impact me in the midst of dark, confusing, painful days. And, and what would you say though, to the person who's like, yeah, all, all that stuff's great. <clears throat> I like, I just need therapy. <laughs> I'm, I'm struggling. I'm depressed. I'm hurting. I'm anxious. I'm glad that you kind of shared these devotionals, but I just need therapy. Like what would you say to someone in that place and why this piece of it is so important? I think some people desperately need therapy. Um, probably more people than are aware of it need sure. therapy. They need they need professional help uh, with someone that they can you know have a dedicated amount of time to who will walk them through their problems. So uh, I'm not about to say people shouldn't have therapy. So th- first of all, that that may be incredibly important. But I will say this: 
had I adjusted my sleep habits, had I eaten right, exercised, uh, talked to a therapist, and taken medication, my heart would not have found peace. That's good. Um, I need to address every area of life, and I needed that. The, and at the heart of all of that is the knowledge of God, and and the ministry of the Word. So, um, and as and here's what I found: just that didn't help me fully either. Right. It, it, I, I survived. But to thrive, I needed to address the whole person, right? right? A physical, spiritual, psychosomatic being. And so I think you can't neglect one uh, and just focus on the other. Yeah. Well, I think that one of the things that readers obviously will realize very, very quickly is that um, you're a Bible-saturated guy, and this is a Bible-saturated book. In fact, in your introduction... Uh, to experiencing the Trinity, you said the book is about how the Word of God draws us to the living God. So um, just in a couple minutes, explain a, a little bit about how the book is structured and how you bring Scripture to bear in each of these short chapters, because it's a unique kind of book. So explain a little bit about how that's laid out. Yeah, I think it's, um, well, I think it's, I just feel like it's kind of your basic devotional, to be honest, um, in, in that it's each chapter or reading is uh, a passage of scripture that is accompanied with uh, meditations that are designed to be, um, you know, kind of mold over in the mind over a period of time. So in that sense, I think it's a pretty traditional devotional book. But uh, the way the way that I it's it's structured and the way I, I think it's best used is uh, it's structured uh, in three parts, uh, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So there are 15 readings on God as Father and theology proper. There are 20 readings on uh, God as the Son and Christology. And then there are 15 readings on God as the Holy Spirit. And uh, so, it's arranged in that way, and I would encourage people to read no more than one a day if they're going to get the most out of it, right? This, you know, there's 50 readings. You read one a day and let that be, one, a model for how you ought to be meditating on Scripture, right? Like when you read – like I was in Proverbs 4 this morning. That's, that's kind of my jam, right? That's what I do in the mornings. I like to hit that proverb. And so I'm in Proverbs 4 here on the 4th, and, and I'm, I'm finding key passages in that Proverbs that I'm just going over and over in my mind, talking to myself about it. So it should be a model for people uh, for you know, preaching to yourself, just like my first book. Um, but then also it is an exhortation. You know, I, I need people like you, Ryan, to, to speak to me truth and to mm -hmm. exhort me. Uh, we all need that. And so this is just one more voice that can uh, be a means of exhortation in your spiritual life. Yeah, because I, I know you're not just saying like, read this verse and you'll get better. But uh, I think because we live in a culture that's obsessed with quick fixes and instant gratification, I think there really is the possibility of disappointment for people when they realize it's not as simple as just reading scripture and then seeing their problems dissipate. And that's why I really love one of the lines that you wrote uh, where you said the power of God's word is not seen in the immediacy of its work. And so can you flesh that out a little bit and maybe help people have some realistic expectations around how this process of like meditation and, and uh, on scripture really works? Yeah, even just in the last few days, um, I've been speaking with Christians who are going through um, 
nightmarish circumstances. They are in the midst of deep pain that, uh, that I can't even fully relate to. And the questions that I'm getting is, is how, how does this get better? How do I get better? One brother was telling me, I feel like I failed the test that God just gave me. How can I, how, how can I expect, what can I expect, um, in, in, in terms of the future? How is, how am I going to get better in this? And, uh, so, and what I, I try to prepare them for is a life of suffering. The Christian life will always include a measure of suffering. And for some, it will be severe. For others, it will be more uh, temperate. But um, the key is, can I suffer where I am well through the grace and the presence and the ministry of God in my life through his word in the church. Mm-hmm. That's that, so when it when we're looking at um okay God I want you to comfort me. I want you to do something here to alleviate me of my pain, uh, which is an appropriate prayer. Uh, what I found in my experience was I would pray for 45 minutes uh, crying, uh pleading and I would get up from my bed and I would feel exactly the same. Yeah. Now, this is where the test of faith comes in. Did God hear me? Well, I know that he heard me mm-hmm. because Christ is my advocate and the Holy Spirit interpreted my groans. So I know that God heard me. I know that God loves me because he, he sent his son to die for me. I have to let the scripture inform my understanding of God in the midst of his slowness to answer me and to give me what I felt that I really needed. And I think sometimes there is an immediacy, right? Um, these days, oftentimes when I'm uh, frustrated or anxious or fearful, I pray and I, and I find a, a much quicker response. But there are times when the response is very slow to bring comfort. And I believe God oftentimes does that so that we will learn to trust him even when it's, um, well, just not as evident that he is there. So that our faith will be grounded in the promises of his word and not the feelings that we might have at the moment. And so that when he finally does answer us and supply us with his grace, it is that much sweeter and we are that much more grateful. Yeah. So it's more about, I think what you're modeling through this book is less this promise of, um, I mean, he might, remove you from the stuff you might experience complete and total healing in the midst of whatever it is that someone might be struggling with. But the promise is more one of, um, meditating on God's word, being a source of, uh, grace that sustains you through whatever it is that you're going through, as opposed to just immediately taking you out of it. If you have a quiet time. Right. Right. Like no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man and God is faithful and he will provide, you know, he will supply you with the grace you need to stand up underneath it. It's, it's this idea that God is with you through the temptation and he will see you to the end. And, so you can find satisfaction in him now, if not in your circumstances. And ultimately, the promise is, is he will deliver you yeah. at some point. Sure. And, you know, for me, uh, on a large degree, it took months. For others, it takes days. For others, years. Yeah. Well, I know the book comes at a really timely point because <clears throat> there's an increasing amount of conversation um, thank God, specifically in the church about mental health. And your care and your pastoral heart are so evident 
throughout the entire book. But one question I anticipate people having is like, when does pastoral counsel and community and communion with God need to include the help of, of, a, of a therapist or a good psychiatrist? So um, we've kind of talked about the maybe predisposition some people might have to just, I just want meds, just give me that. But then there are going to be people on the other end and probably more people on the other end in the church. And so any signs that you would point people to or advice that you would give them on, on here's when you really need to solicit the help of a Dr. Murray or a therapist or a Christian counselor outside of, you know, maybe just your pastor or small group leader. Well, I think if you need, if you need sustained um, counsel, uh, frequent, intense counsel that is going to go beyond what your peers can give you, say, in your community group, your small group, you know, whatever, um, then you, you need to look at opportunities to, to meet with a professional. Um, pastors, like we counsel people all the time, we meet with people, but, you know, you can only counsel full-time people, so, so many people, and most of us are not professional counselors, we're right. disciplers. Yeah. So, um, if I sense as a pastor that somebody needs professional counseling, I will refer them to some great counselors that we have, both in our church and, you know, in, in the city as well. But I think the advice that I would give to people who are struggling and are going through a bitter time is if you have addressed the, your life on, on – if you are addressing your life on every conceivable level, right? Um, am I, what are my sleep habits? What are, how am I, how's my health? Uh, am I exercising? What's my workload? What are the stressors in my life? Um, you know, you look at all of these things, you look at your, 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 the, the gospel and idolatry issues in your life. You know, am I believing the Lord? Am I repenting of my sin? Am I harboring sin and not dealing with it? Am I hiding this? Uh, you know, if you can look at all of these things in your life and you're still really struggling, then I think you're foolish yeah. not to go and get help beyond that and, uh, to see a counselor and then potentially even, um, a doctor. So, um, I, I wouldn't be uh, afraid to look at those things, especially if you have really already exhausted all of the things that you can do on, on your own end. Right. Okay. Well, I th in God's providence, I know that there's going to be a lot of people listening who are really going to resonate with your description of this dark season that inspired the book or that are going through some sort of you know season like this of their own. They pastors, leaders, husbands, wives, mom, dads, all different kinds of people. And so for those that might be listening and they're in a difficult season, similar to the one that you walk through, just what, what do you think are some of the immediate steps that you would encourage them to take aside from buying your new book? <laughs> yeah. More important than the book is um, to talk to the people of God around you. It's good. You have to, uh, I, I would have, I would have died. I would have died were it not for the people that God had put around me. My, my friends, the elders, the, my wife, of course. My wife was so, such a, a champion of the truth, and you know, she prayed for me. She prayed over me when I was weak, and um, you've got to talk to people. So talk to your pastors. Talk to your friends. Let them know. Um, I remember I called uh, I called my best friend Steve McCoy, and I, I said, "Hey, man, uh, here's how bad things are right now, and you know, uh, what do you what do you think 
What do you think I should do? And he just wanted to go all the way back to the beginning and say, hang on, let's talk about you for a minute. Let's not worry about your next steps. You know, if you need to leave the ministry, let's talk about where you're at. Um, so you got to talk to people um, and be, be really honest with them. Um, you have to seek the Lord uh, and use the means of grace. Um, I, I think those are the first two things that, yeah. that anyone ought to do. And just be willing to get help from every avenue that's necessary. Yeah, it's good. Well, let's shift gears a little bit. I, uh, you're, you're pretty involved on social media, Instagram and Twitter and blogging, uh, especially, but, uh, I had put something out on social media. I was going to be interviewing you and ask people what questions they might have for you. And we got a few responses. And so thought I'd ask some of those. And I want to start with something that I know is really dear to your heart. Um, on Twitter at Brian Lowe, at, uh, just put beard maintenance. That's all. It wasn't even a question. So yeah. he's not a very good listener. Okay. But, uh, so yeah. let's just, uh, for you, you're statement. like, you're like a, like a pretty serious, uh, beard aficionado. And I think an inspiration to many. So what are the keys to good beard maintenance? Inquiring minds want to know. <sighs> are you familiar with, um, Keswick theology? No, because I okay. am cool. So, um, Keswick, uh, uh, your beardless face betrays <laughs> that statement. Uh, Keswick theology is a second blessing kind of a theology. Okay. And uh, it came about in the your 19th nerddom is 19th century. Well, one of the phrases, one of the phrases that is popular among uh, Keswick uh, theologians is let go and let God. Oh, okay. That I know. So bumper stickers, coffee mugs. I just didn't right, know where right. it came from. So, uh, well, it came from the devil, but <laughs> okay. originally. How do you really feel? But, uh, but the, uh, but I that's the one, I think you could, you could, you could hijack that Keswick slogan and apply that to beard maintenance. Just let go. Let God. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Let God reign over your face. Stop, stop fighting the Lord. <laughs> okay. So now because I don't have a beard, I'm in spiritual opposition to God. James would call you an enemy of God. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> okay, moving right along. Uh, on a more serious note, right. um, uh, at Jared Sparks on Twitter asked, uh, in light of the resurrection, how is the regular taking in of known carcinogens good stewardship of our bodies? Anyone that follows you on Instagram knows that you smoke uh, cigars occasionally, we could say, um, or hourly. Uh, depending on how you'd like to look at it. So I know you you get that question from people. So how is that good stewardship of your body? He does not mention cigars. He mentions carcinogens. Why are you <laughs> leaping to the cigar thing? He could be talking about the, the carcinogens that are found in microwave popcorn bags. Like uh, maybe he's talking about that. Could be that. Or the carcinogens that. that are found in, uh, you know. Uh, I'm going to guess. Non-organic fruit. Maybe it's non-organic fruit. <laughs> okay. So I, I, let's say theoretically he's speaking okay. of the cigars. What do you say? What do you? Uh, yeah, no, uh, I get that, um, and I think I know. I think I know who Jared Sparks is on on the Instagram. Um, yeah, I uh, I think any uh, first of all, there are unhealthy, um, not just things that potentially might cause cancer, but there are unhealthy things that are, um, that are risky for us in, mm -hmm. in every sphere of life. And uh, risk in and of itself, uh, I do not believe is sin. Um, far, far more people die of heart disease than die of lung cancer in any given year. 
And uh, I am 100% confident that far more Southern Baptists in particular, <laughs> of which I am one, die of heart disease related to poor diet every year sure. than lung cancer. Nobody really seems to be too concerned about that. Yeah. Uh, but because smoking has become such an ugly taboo in our culture, it's easy to kind of pick on that. So um, without getting into uh, the studies, many of which I have read on cancer research and the likelihood of uh, cigars, uh, non-inhaling, non-previous cigarette smokers may or may not have related to various forms of cancer, without getting into all of that, I would simply say this. Um, I'm comfortable with the level of risk that I take as a Christian. My conscience is clear with uh, the foods that I eat, the things that I enjoy, be it coffee or cigars um, or red meat. Uh, I'm, I'm comfortable with that. Uh, I am working to, to maintain a, a relatively healthy life and be a good steward of my body. But I do not think the risks that I am currently uh, taking dishonor God or um, are going to prove to be uh, fatalistic in my personal life. Gotcha. I've tried to explain that to my wife and uh, she still doesn't care and doesn't want me smoking cigars. What are we, what are we, what are we going to do after this? <laughs> Probably go smoke cigars. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, on maybe a related note on Instagram, uh, at Andrew Brantley, who's a redemption member asks, uh, and I quote, how the heck did you survive a Baptist seminary? And I think that's closely related a little bit to what we're talking about. But uh, another person asked at Derek Andrews, nine, two, three says, assuming, uh, there was, and is a good amount of religious folk who give you flack for, uh, cigars and tats. Did you ever struggle with the insecurities that can result from wrongly valuing public opinion over gods? And if so, how did you overcome that while answering the call to ministry alongside the religious? Have you got a lot of, you get a lot of flack about tattoos and all that stuff still or no? No, people are too afraid of me. Yeah, you are pretty scary. I'm such a scary little guy. Yeah. No, um, I actually don't get any, where in, in this context, in this culture, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a white educated middle-class professional. That's how, you know, the culture would classify me. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and I happen to have a, 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 a moderately large beard and a lot of visible tattoos. Uh, nobody cares. It, it has had zero impact on my evangelism, my leadership, the people in our church. We have uh, sweet little old ladies that, uh, that love their, their pastors and their church. And we have uh, young single guys and it, it seems to have no relevant impact. I, I would say two things that, that relate to this. Um, and then I'll answer the seminary question. One is when Jen and I moved up back here to plant a church. We both agreed we will not play the religious games with Baptists. We're, we're Baptists, so I'm speaking a lot about Baptists. Sure. We're not going to play the religious games. We're not going to uh, conform to uh, extra-biblical expectations that religious folk have uh, for our sanctification. Uh, we do not want to flaunt our liberty in their faces or unnecessarily cause strife or contention, but uh, we're not about to even give a little bit of room to people that would suggest that something is sin when it is not, or that you must be doing something to be sanctified, which is not in scripture. So we refused to play religious games. So on the one hand, I don't really care uh, what people think on that level. I, I'm very, I'm very not interested in what other Baptists think about me if I am not stepping outside the bounds of scripture. Uh, on the other hand, I would not have uh, the beard 
as big as it is, or the tattoos, if I felt like it would impede my gospel ministry in the culture that God has sent me to. So if um, if I was in a different place, a different country, a different context, uh, I would have kept my tattoos that I've had for you know over twenty years. Um, underneath the, the shirt. <laughs> um, they wouldn't have crept down my arms. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I take that seriously, but no, I, I, I don't want to create unnecessary barriers for evangelism and gospel ministry. I haven't found that to be the case. Uh, while at the same time, I'm not interested in what the religious people feel um, is uh, holy, right, and good if it's not in scripture. Baptist, how did I survive a Baptist seminary? By going to the best Baptist seminary you can go to. Uh, that's how. Uh, is that bar real high? Uh, uh, well, it has set the bar so high that no other Baptist seminary can meet it. How about that? Oh, okay. I'll give you that. No, I love Southern Seminary. Uh, great school. I'm reformed. It's reformed. Culturally, it wasn't a great fit. Uh, you know, certainly um, I, I, I felt a little like a little like the odd man out there for a bit. But um, no, I, I loved uh, academia. I loved the seminary context. I love study and uh, going to a school that's largely reformed. Uh, was a good fit. So cool. I didn't have any struggle there. All right. Last question for the preachers on Instagram. I uh, hope I s- pronounced this right, but at RD McLennigan asks, uh, for you as a preacher, what is the most challenging aspect of sermon preparation on a regular basis? The most challenging aspect of sermon preparation. Um, it's what's hard for me is making sure that, uh, that what I am preaching is, I mean, because I'm always going to be in the text. That's yeah. not going to be the struggle. I'm going to be in the text because I don't have any confidence in myself. So is making sure that the text is intersecting with the gospel, right? Always with the gospel and with the the actual needs, the spiritual needs of the people to whom I'm preaching. In other words, it's easy to open up the Bible and preach like a commentary. Like that's easy. Um, it's, it's easy to, um, to preach theology and say, this is the truth. But when I'm trying to show why the virgin birth matters to a person whose um, husband just left her, yeah. when I'm trying to explain how the virgin birth uh, makes a difference uh, to the man who um, is, is and wife who are mourning the loss of their baby, um, I want to make sure that I'm, I'm showing them that I, I'm not just adding to the theology on your shelf. I, I want this to be truth that impacts your heart and gives you grace for today. So finding that without making it cheesy, but making it real experiential theology, I think that's the hard part. It's, it's being able to go, okay, so here it is in systematic theology. Here's, here's the hypostatic union. This is great. And you can break it all down and then say, so like, what does that mean for the depressed, uh, the afflicted, the comfortable, the happy. What does it mean for all of these people in our church at any given time? That's that's what takes the long. That's the that's the that's the bulk of the work right yeah. there. Because exegesis is hard, but uh, but putting together something homiletically that is going to both honor scripture and feed people. Well, that's I think that's harder. Yeah, I think most preachers would probably agree with that. All right. The book Experiencing the Trinity releases in February of 2015. You can pre-order it now on Amazon. Uh, Joe blogs on experiential theology at joethorn.net, and you can find him on pretty much all forms of social media at at Joe Thorne. Joe, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. I appreciate it. Thanks, man. It was good. 
One of the things I've watched Joe learn and that I've learned from him is that true health involves the whole person. Your physical life, your emotional, mental, and spiritual life, they all matter. So it's never just going to be prayer or just a pill that puts us on the path to true health. We need gospel community, godly counsel, and communion with Jesus through prayer and meditation. So I'd encourage you to consider where you might be neglecting one of those three things. Well, that's it for this episode, but don't forget that you can connect with me on Twitter and Instagram at at Ryan Hughley and also on my blog at ryanhughley.com. That's H-U-G-U-L-E-Y. We'll be back next week with episode number 16 and my conversation with H.B. Charles Jr. He's a pastor and the author of many books, including my favorite, On Preaching. He's a beast of a preacher, and I can't wait for you to benefit from his wisdom. Until then, it's an honor to learn with you. I love you, and thanks for listening.